Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Well, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Neil Batiam, and I have the pleasure of sitting here with Risa Luxa-Goldman, who is from the Risa Luxa-Goldman Marketing Group. And I hope I said that right, Risa, but uh, please introduce yourself to us and tell us where your work is. Great. Hi, Dr. Bhatia. My name's Risa, like you said. My last name's Luxa, but the company is called Goldman Marketing Group. And I am speaking to you right now from San Diego, California. And my company has been in the healthcare space for over 10 years, and I've been working in this dermatology space for over 20 years, all doing marketing to help physicians in the practice. Oh, very nice. Well, I know you're going to be humble, but... We all know you come from dermatology royalty, so we'll leave your father out of this for now, So, which is fine. But you have had some good exposures to dermatology, and especially from the marketing side and practice management building, which we could all learn a few valuable tips from. And I'm just going to start out with a really basic question. Tell me, what was your most interesting horror story that you've seen in dermatology marketing? Oh, wow. Well, I've seen a lot. I have definitely come across a doctor that had signed a contract with a marketing agency. And when they left them, they found out that that marketing agency owned all of the content on the website. And that actually included the before and after photos, believe it or not. So that turned into a little bit of a legal battle. Because oh my God. That's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But I think a more common one that I see a lot is when doctors are getting started with their own practice or maybe leaving a bigger group practice to start their own branding, you know, is it's the chicken and the egg story and they don't have a lot of money to spend on marketing. So a lot of times they start and they don't spend a lot and they create something and then kind of the, I guess the horror stories in my world are that they come to me a few years later thinking that we can elevate it, but in fact, it wasn't really done right to begin with. So we actually kind of have to backtrack and start over and redo a lot of the work that was done. Yeah. And that's a lot of nuts and bolts that a lot of us don't get out of training, obviously. And even more so, it's one of those things like the first couple of years out is almost a learning of what not to do rather than Mm -hmm. what to do, which is uh, one of the things I used to talk about in some of my courses with practice management, also from my own experience, you know, learning on the job and seeing how things transition from out of the bubble of residency into a real job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that doctors are obviously extremely smart, but they're not taught some of these basic marketing principles. And I've seen so many times marketing companies just have a slick sales rep or spiel and they get them looped in. And then I find that the doctors really have no idea what's really even happening, what's working, what's not, because it's all pretty foreign language to them. And it's really not rocket science. So in most of my lectures and presentations, I actually try to teach the things that you need to know and be aware of so that you can monitor and know what's working and what's not. And, you know, not let a marketing company just use some big words to confuse you. Oh, no question. And what's interesting too, is a lot of dermatologists, if they have someone else in the office, who's a spouse, the office manager, for example, whether it be male or female, or there's a nurse or somebody else who has their back, then you tend to at least get some checks and balances. But if it's just you against the world, you you tend to make some really reckless decisions sometimes as an early young dermatologist who thinks he knows everything. So to your point, I mean, let's say you're starting out first five years out, what's the best place to target your marketing strategy and which audience do you want to reach? Let's say independent of aesthetic, medical or surgical, what would you offer to anybody as as far as startup advice? Well, I think it's always best to start and focus on your foundation. A lot of people all of a sudden jump into how do I get leads? How do I drive new patients? But you really need to get your foundation right first. And when I say foundation, you need a good logo and brand development. 
that's not just a visual logo. Sure, you need that. But what is your practice name even going to be? Are you going to use your name? Are you going to use a group name? What do you want to do in the, in the next few years? Might you bring in another doctor? Those are all considerations that have to go into kind of your branding that you want to be. And even part of your branding in terms of your differentiators, what will make you different from the competitors? Once you figure that out, of course, you have to have a website nowadays as the kind of the foundation of your marketing strategy. And then beyond that, I'd say your online reputation. So getting your local listing set up, your Yelp, your health grades, all those wonderful websites that we all love that allow patients to review doctors, you need to claim and optimize all of them and kind of control that. And I would always suggest getting those three buckets in order before you start trying to spend money on driving leads. Yeah. And should you be doing that even six months before you even start seeing patients? Yes, that's a really good point because sometimes people call me and they say, oh, you know, I'm going to be starting up my practice, for example, in four weeks. Let's do it. And I'm like, oh, wow, well, it's going to take, you know, four weeks probably to even get a logo and brand developed for you. So ideally, it's six months beforehand to do it right so you can spend time and only have to do it once and not be coming back to someone like me a few years later and having to redo it. Yeah, of course. And in, in with that same vein, I mean, you you need some help. I mean, getting insurance contracts started, you get all the overhead set up and all the nuts and bolts of the practice. But again, a lot of dermatologists forget about these other online strategies and, the, and everything else that's part of the new business model. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's important. Which kind of goes back to the dial-up days, if you will. I mean, you know, we used to think about yellow pages and you know, a lot of practices had the, their practice starting with A, so they've been first in the yellow pages listing, which... <laughs> Because now it's like, you know, that's hieroglyphics, right? So, so and, but it does pose a question, right? Is print advertising even viable anymore? Is there really a, a way to bypass print advertising? I mean, the short answer is no. Print advertising is generally not where I advise to spend money. However, if it's done on a super localized level, I have seen it work well. But only if you're going to do it ongoing consistently. You cannot run a print ad once in your local neighborhood magazine and be one and done. You'd have to do it every single month for a year or two and keep the repetition going so that people could see it over time. And then I have seen it work a little bit, but I don't think it would be your first line or first. Yeah. So what's interesting is you see a lot like San Diego Reader, for example, as our hometown paper Mm -hmm. has, and you see a lot of the advertisements for clinical research and for aesthetics get everything done. But for medical dermatology, you're really kind of handcuffed by either what the government plans allow you to access in terms of clinics or whatever's in your insurance plan. Is there an effective strategy for just good general medical dermatology in print or should that just be not part of the equation anymore? I really think it should be online focused first because people are going to be Googling online. They're going to Google, you know, what to do about their acne or who local is the, you know, eczema expert or whatever it might be. And so your, yeah, your website's going to come up, but even your Google local listings are going to come up. So it's, I would focus more on the online driving some reviews to your pages and getting your reputation. In yeah. Order. But we have a running joke in the office about who's an expert because search engine <laughs> optimization, if you put in dermatologist, nobody seems to care. But if you put in acne expert, rosacea expert, genital ward expert, herpes expert, and all of a sudden everyone comes running, it's like, well, I hear you're the herpes expert. I'm like, whoa, e- easy there. Wait a second. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, given that, it is a driver, of course, when, you know, everyone's on Google and clickbait is everywhere. What do you recommend about navigating around clickbait and and everything else that goes with how patients would find you? Like, let's say we're running from that model. 
I think that a very important piece is your reviews online because people are going to default to them. People really do trust other people's opinions for better or for worse. So those Google reviews, those Yelp reviews, even if you're not trying to look at review sites, if you just Google the doctor, it, it shows up on page one of Google and shows their star rating. So yeah. I'd say that's pretty important. And then if you're pushing cosmetics, I think that the proof is in the pudding. Before and after photos is where it's at. Anyone can write a whole bunch of pages about their technique with Botox or fillers, but patients really want to see the results to see that yeah. you've got the chops to do it. So from a HIPAA standpoint, where can we draw the line in terms of what we can show, whether it be in print or online? What have you heard as far as, is there a, a place that you have to stop in terms of before and after images or is it just the wild west now? Well, you definitely need to have a good photo consent form, photo video consent form that every patient signs and it should disclose how you're going to use them and so they have options. Is it for anything? Is it only for educational purposes? Is it okay for marketing purposes? Is it okay in print? But if you do get a written consent, then I absolutely feel put it in print ads, put it on a website everywhere and anywhere you can. Yeah. And with that, I mean, is that, Again, skirting the line of making yourself look too aesthetic when you still have a balanced practice, right? I mean, there's, you can show yourself off as a real aesthetic expert, if you will, or what have you. But if you're also fundamentally seeing medical dermat, are you cannibalizing your own image that way? Yeah, so I think if you're primarily medical derm and you want to push that, well, for one, there are before and after photos. I have a lot of beautiful ones that I've seen from skin cancer, you know, excisions and repairs, acne, many different types of medical derm. But beyond that, patient testimonials, I think are great. Written testimonials, video testimonials, feedback from them, because they'll be speaking in the same terms that other patients are. You know, I used to be embarrassed to wear a bathing suit, you know, because of X, Y, and Z. And now they'll say things that people can relate to and it will yeah. be more meaningful to them than just having a doctor rattle off the different treatment options that are in their office for psoriasis. Absolutely. And, and you're right. It makes it more genuine, more tangible than someone who's trying to reach. Mm -hmm. So social media is obviously pretty dynamic, but let's focus back on the website, which is not often as dynamic or it, it may need updating regularly. What does an ideal website look like in terms of tabs and number of pages. I mean, just thinking off the top of your head, like what, if you had to construct a web, the ideal website for a practice, where would you go with that? That's a good question. I think first I would have to ask, you know, what the goal is. Is the goal for it to rank in Google when people are searching for the local acne expert or is the goal for it to be a professional kind of landing page if someone is searching for you and wants more information about you? Yeah. Because those are two very different things. If it's more of just the landing page, you know, it doesn't need to be that long or that robust, but it should be super professional and credible and, you know, give information about the doctor and the practice and maybe some frequently asked questions. If you do want it to rank in Google, then you guys may have heard the phrase content is king. And it is true. You need a lot of content on your website. Mm -hmm. You need a page for every different type of dermatologic condition, every different dermatologic treatment. So ultimately your website's at minimum going to be 20 pages and maybe and ideally well over 50, especially when you start adding on blogs and other pages like that, because really you need a lot of content, literally content on the page to yeah. in order for it to rank in Google. And, I, and you bring up something interesting there because you think about the primary driver, is it social media beginning the website or is it the website beginning social media? Because the website is probably going to have more information Whereas mm -hmm. the social media is going to have more reputation and more chatter about the practice, probably. 
Well, I think that definitely the website trumps social media every single day, hands down. There are some specific doctors that have been able to do well and grow their practice off social media, but that is very few and far in between. And I think if someone really wants to use social media in that manner, they're going to have a very different type of practice than otherwise. They're going to have to put themselves out there. It's a lot of content creation. It's a lot of the doctor's personal time, you know, putting it out there, creating videos, taking selfies um, all day, every day. But social media, just to kind of have a presence, maybe for patient retention, a little bit to support SEO is highly different than what I was saying, if you really want to drive new patient leads. Sure. A website, oh, sorry, I was going to say a website either way is, I think, totally essential and every doctor needs to have it. And I would say, you know, what else does it look like what you asked like? I'd say that it should look, obviously, it should be mobile optimized. The vast majority of the people using your website are going to be on mobile. And I see a lot of physicians when they're working with website companies, they keep looking at it on a desktop version. The design options they get are on desktop. They check it on what desktop themselves. They look at it to see if it's good. And in truth, that's definitely not the majority of the patients that are going to be viewing it. So you need to focus on making it workable on mobile, load fast. And then secondly, ideally built on a system such as WordPress that is not some proprietary system connected to a marketing company, but actually a platform that is editable so that you can edit it and grow with it. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And then it's something we just little things we don't think about. I mean, as mm-hmm. far as who's, who's really watching you more from the phone than at, at a, on a desktop. But even more interesting, and this comes from an ignorant guy's perspective, is like, aside from images and such, what kind of color schemes, what kind of fonts, what kind of just little nuts and bolts could you recommend to someone making a website? We used to think about, should we have these all in loud South Beach colors or, you know, (laughs) really wild animations and things like that? But realistically, what makes an eye-catching website from a marketing standpoint? Well, I think it should be very clean and clear and very to the point. You don't want too many distractions. You want to really be in control of where the patient should funnel to. So if on the homepage, the goal is to get them next to go learn about the doctor, that should be the biggest, brightest, boldest button there. And then on the doctor page, maybe your goal from that is to get them to call and schedule. So that should be the biggest, brightest button. So you you can't have everything screaming for attention. You really need to think through what do I want someone to do on this page and then make sure that that's the focus of that page. Yeah. But in terms of color scheme, I mean, that kind of goes back to your branding. That's a little bit in that foundational work. You need to come up with your brand. Is it going to be, you know, I think the, probably the most typical colors that doctors lean in towards is probably like a blue, blue and gray. It's what a lot of the hospital groups are. So in that case, you know, it it will be similar to everyone else. Do you want to do something very different and bold? I definitely recommend against red. It's kind of can be, um, since you guys are dermatologic surgeons, you know, you don't want to do anything that reminds you. Oh, red, red, red is blood, inflammation, red is red is not good, you know, and then anything too feminine, you don't want to not respect your male patients. So probably stay away from pink and purple. So blue seems like the safest color, but I also feel like it's not as unique. So, you know, when we're developing brands, I love if we can do something a little bit more unique, even if it's something like green, perhaps. Yeah. yeah I remember when I was first making mine, I remember soft blues and greens were always easier on the eyes, but they were more eye catching, but they also weren't making any announcements. So mm-hmm. probably- what about the office staff and everyone ancillary as far as in the practice? Where, where could they be of help in terms of marketing? Maybe even just thinking about internal marketing and in the office. I think the staff is highly critical for a successful marketing strategy. And I don't think a lot of people 
realize how important they are for a successful marketing campaign. And here's why. The best marketing company in the world, their goal is to drive you what? Phone calls and mm -hmm. email inquiries, right? And that's where they're going to end. Well, guess what? That phone calls and email inquiries do not lead to revenue or patience. But actually, the person that responds to that email inquiry, that picks up that phone, those are the people that are going to convert it to a consultation or an appointment. And then it's up to, of course, the doctor to have a great bedside manner and be able to provide a treatment plan that makes sense in order to get that patient to be happy and to be retained to the practice. So the staff is extremely important. They are the first impression of the practice verbally when even if the patient walks in the door, but also especially on the phone and on email. And I think it's definitely important to involve them in the big picture of marketing yeah. so that they understand their place. Well, it's funny, and it's good you bring it up because marketing doesn't just have to be about new business, but about retaining business, right? I mean, you market within the office to keep the patient, the patient base you have and maybe get word of mouth to drive in business from there as long as you keep marketing going, if you will keep your foot on the gas for marketing all the time. Yes. You're what? a thousand percent right. And I think when, I, when people think about marketing, they always think about new lead generation, patients, new patients, new patients. But that's actually probably the last part of marketing that you should think about because it's the most expensive and the most difficult. The yeah. very first easiest thing to do is to one, convert the patients that are sitting in your practice. So looking at your conversion rates of consultation to treatment, looking at your retention rates to keep people with you in the practice. There is no reason why every single patient that comes to see you should not be a patient for life. Everyone needs a dermatologist and they should be coming back at minimum once a year for a skin check. So if people yeah. are leaving, that's definitely something to look into. And you want to make sure that you're doing a good job with the conversion and the retention portion of it before you start driving new patients. Because if not, you're just running this never ending hamster wheel and yeah, it's hard to get out of. Yeah, you can't get off your own treadmill and out of your own way because you made the wrong decisions in the beginning. Yeah, and you might make some marketing company really happy with sending them a lot of money to drive leads. But... Well, exactly. Well, that actually brings my next question. So who would need someone like yourself or a publicist or just help? When do we throw up our hands and say, well, I need Risa to come in and save the day or vice versa and say, well, now I'm doing fine on my own. What's everyone's metric or decision tree to, to get some help and who should be looking for someone like yourself? Well, to me, I think it's about time and what's the best use of your time. If you have enough patients to see during the day, it is for sure a better use of the doctor's time to be a physician and not to be worried about their social media or their website. However, if you're just starting off and maybe you have a couple hours every day that is not booked with patients yet, then maybe you can spend some time writing some of your own content or working on your own social media. But ultimately, it is definitely going to be a better use of the doctor's time to focus on being a doctor and to let someone else, whether it be a marketing firm, whether it be an in-house marketing person, or whether it be a marketing savvy staff member, but someone else to focus on the marketing is definitely a best thing. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we all know plenty of dermatologists who can't even check their own email or text. So been, that's probably a wise idea. In the last few minutes we have, Risa, just let's go over some do's and don'ts of marketing. Let's start with what not to do and just give us a few pearls on what not to do. Well, I think for one, like I mentioned before, you don't want to start spending money on driving leads until you're confident that your practice is going to get, do a good job at handling them and converting them into appointments. So I definitely wouldn't put the cart in front of the horse on that end. I also think it can be rather difficult for a practice to engage with lots of different marketing companies and vendors. A lot of times I see doctors have one person that does their social media, someone else that does their website, someone else that does their print work, someone else that does their email blasts. And I find that when you do that, you end up having a very disjointed 
message that goes out and your branding is inconsistent and it's hard for someone in the office to kind of quarterback it and keep it all together. Yeah. So I would also not start a lot of marketing or not invest a lot of money in marketing unless you have good tracking mechanisms in place. You've got to be able to answer simple questions like how many new leads did your practice get this month? And how was that compared to last month? And if you're not able to do that, you got to set that up before you start spending money on marketing because you need to know if it's working or not. Right, exactly. If practice doing better does not necessarily mean that marketing was doing better. Absolutely. It's the best way to throw good money after bad, right? I mean, Absolutely. And with marketing, there's a lot of things that go into marketing. Is Yelp yeah. sending you patients? Is it Google? Is it social? Is it real self? You know, you need to know what each one is doing so that you know what to scale and what not to. You don't yeah. want to scale your problems. You know, one pitfall I've heard in marketing is people who forget to keep their personal identities firewalled from their social media content on their office. What would you want to counsel anybody on that? I mean, making sure they take the right yeah. step. Sure. That, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty basic one. I think that yeah. your personal social media profiles should be made private so they're not searchable. I personally do that even for my own employees. I just think as a manager for your staff and as you know, a leader for your patients and an influencer, you keep that personal stuff private. Or you want to know that what you're putting out there personally is public information. Absolutely. So the last minute we have, give us three good pearls on what to do with marketing, if you could. Marketing a practice. Even, this is for Derm 101, for the guy who just graduated from training. Okay. Do collect patient emails. Every single patient that comes in your door, you need an email for. Your email list is golden. Two, take before and after photos. Not just for marketing purposes, but because it will help with even patient consultations and education and as you're going over the years with them so you can look back. And three... Make sure that you have good customer service inside the practice and you focus on kind of your operations because if you don't and you start getting bad reviews online, it will be an uphill battle to turn it around to help marketing. Absolutely. No, those make perfect sense. And I'll give you again from my own experience, having had my own practice for many years and then being part of a group. I mean, it's very easy to have the shifty kind of salesman come in and dangle the carrot of, oh yeah, you need this and you need that. And it's very important to kind of take things in, in small bites and not bite up more than you can chew, especially yes. early on when money's tight and when you're trying to make a name for yourself. Definitely. And to be just making sure that you have a way to monitor it yourself to really know what's working and not so that you're spending your dollars as, as best you can. Exactly. Well, Rachel, this was all very sage advice for everybody in any step of practice. So I, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to give us your perspectives. And uh, this is a, there was the pleasure of speaking with Risa Luxa. So thank you very much, Risa. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I wish all of you the best of luck. I know we talked about a lot of scary things today, but Overall, there is a lot of hope and there's a lot of good to be done as well oh, in terms absolutely. of marketing. So don't be too afraid. Just make sure you get someone that you trust and that you know what's going on too. Best advice of the day. Don't be afraid of your own shadow. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank so, you so much for inviting me. And this is Dr. Neil Bhatia and another installment of Dialogues in Dermatology. Take care now. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.